0: Hey, listeners, welcome to the Eater Upsell, uh, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am Daniel Janine, the producer of the show, and and, uh, with me is Amanda Clute, our editor-in-chief. Hello, Amanda.
1: Hi, Dan. Uh, We are putting together some best of episodes for the next few weeks, while our dear co-hosts, Helen and Greg, take a much-deserved break from interviewing some of the best and brightest people in the world of food and culture.
0: This episode is called the best of science. it's probably the best of science dudes, because they're both dudes. Best and of science dudes. dudes. <laughs> and they kind of both actually talk about in their episodes how all their fans are dudes. I've spent some time distilling these two episodes into perfect little 20 to 25 minute versions of themselves. And we're going to get to Kenji, but first, Amanda, let's talk about Vespertine, because you went, and it is something that we talk about all the time on this podcast, and on Eater. Um, Vespertine, for those who don't know, is a white-hot Los Angeles opening by chef uh, Jordan Kahn. It is a 22-seat restaurant uh, tasting menu for about $250 a person, according to Talk, uh, the online restaurant ticket service. But Jordan Kahn would like you to believe that Vespertine was a portal between Earth and space, and uh, I don't know—you're entering new dimensions or something. Anyway, you wrote about it, uh, and you titled your newsletter "The Most Important Restaurant News in Years."
1: Opening, th- maybe most re-
0: post- yeah. restaurant opening. Was that like someone ironic? else might
1: have titled that for me? But uh, okay. oh, <laughs> it wow, is—it so. is—it was—it's the most interesting restaurant opening for sure because the chef Jordan Khan. Is making it so right it's that he's very ambitious and what it is it's an expensive tasting menu it takes up a whole building the building was designed I don't know if it was designed especially for him but it was an architect who he's become friendly with Um,
0: what are they gonna do with it after if it doesn't work
1: I don't know I was (laughs) saying I was joking this is a mean joke but that um, I'm very excited for when it turns into an event space so we can rent it out (laughs) just kidding Jordan I really like your food Um,
0: maybe he can cater (laughs) yes
1: I think money is not an issue for them at the moment, so Mm -hmm. they are not worried about how to pay for this building or pay the rent. Um, I think what made it so interesting is also that he proclaimed it was going to disrupt all modern restaurants. So, it wasn't just media hyping up the place. It was him hyping it, saying, like, this is going to be the craziest thing. It's going to blow minds. The building has its own gravity. It's coming from another dimension. Like, super crazy, like literally crazy proclamations. and so, as someone who's followed restaurants for over a decade, that's so exciting. Like, oh, this person's insane. This might be insane. Like, are we going to be eating upside down? Are we going to have our hands tied behind our right. backs? Like, what weird thing is going to happen? And then, of course, if you have those expectations, you show up and it's it's just a dinner. You know? It's, a, <laughs> it's, it's just a it's dinner. It's just dinner.
0: It's just food. Have there been times when you have felt like, like there has been a disruptive force in food and it was like a pinpoint moment? Like, obviously, there are been trends that have Mm -hmm. changed everything. But have you ever been sitting, having a meal, and you're like, oh, my God, this is going to change everything, or or in the way that, like, a David Lynch film can affect you, like, this is jarring?
1: I'm usually a little behind the ball, so I'll read about these places first. Like, I think El Buyee and Alinea really changed the game. I think Mm. Blue Hill at Stone Barns really did, too, though I think—I was at a dinner once with Gabe Ula, who is a former intern of mine and a a wonderful— Restaurant writer. Hey, and I'm he's, a former intern of yours. <laughs> yeah, you can join the club. It's great. It's a great club to be in. And he's he is more um, well traveled than I am. And he said, "Oh well, isn't that just what Laurent did 15 years ago?" Um, referring to Blue Hill at Stone Barns. And maybe he's right. But I also think um, if you look at the neo bistro Fair in Paris, that kind of changed the game. And I was definitely late to actually trying that in person there, but. I think what Jordan is doing is really interesting. It's not disruptive. Hmm. It just he has a restaurant with a very serious theme and a point of view, and that's kind of like goth space.
0: Wouldn't the perfect end of the story though be if people were eating upside down and like someone not that someone died, but (laughs) like people everyone was like choking on the food and it was like (laughs) a historic failure. Uh, Terrible. No death, obviously, Um, but
1: yeah. I guess I was hoping for a little more surprise. Yeah, Um, but. (laughs) The food is really interesting. It's beautiful. I mm-hmm. think when uh, maybe this is disruptive in this day and age, you're not allowed to take photos. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, Cesar Amir has been doing that at Brooklyn Fair for a long time. But his food, Jordan's, is so gorgeous that you just want to grab your phone because it's so colorful and the plating is so bizarre. And he sticks weird textures along the sides of these black matte um, yeah. plates. And so, I don't know. That's interesting.
0: So- we will keep you updated on the Vespertine Wire, but uh, let's get into J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. Um, he is the managing culinary director of Serious Eats and the author of The Food Lab, the amazing giant book that came out in 2015. Kenji's known for figuring out the perfect version of a lot of different recipes and writing them in a way that is accessible and fun and friendly. He's He's also kind of built a reputation as being a Um, I don't know, like a recipe debunker or like a best practices debunker. His most famous one is probably the reverse sear. You'll hear him talking about it. It is where um, you sear a steak after having it in the oven as opposed to before putting in the oven, which is what is done in restaurants and what, I mean, I used to do before reading his stuff. Um, He's also the kind of person who like he'll look into how much. Water is actually appropriate to cook your pasta in, and not just uh, following the age-old tradition of having tons of water. So Kenji is, I guess, like one of the gods of internet recipes. And this starts off with Helen asking him (laughs) why he thinks that so many of his fans are dudes.
2: Your recipes are particularly alluring to people who may never have cooked before or may have felt... (laughs) <laughs> intimidated by the kitchen or maybe I'm trying to just sort of very diplomatically say what I'm just going to come right out and say like <laughs> dudes there are a lot of dudes yeah. love you like dudes. like <laughs> dudes love you and and I think that it's be, and dudes also tend to love Nathan Mirvold and Alton Brown right. and Harold McGee and this this very kind of quantitative systematic regimented approach that also mm-hmm. maybe carries with it an idea of perfection
3: mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. um which yeah, explain that. no I mean like, well, you it's know the big so, question, I think a um, so I think there's a
3: couple explanations. So I think part of it is that historically men don't learn cooking from their parents the way that, that women do that little little girls bake with their mom and little boys play baseball with their dad whatever you know just historically I think that's sort of how it is and so I think a lot of a lot of sort of dudes grow up without having this sort of you know this knowledge of cooking pressed into them um, or family recipes or anything like that and even more now um, I think you find that because um, for the last few generations we've had, there's a lot of families where both parents are working um, and so you eat out a lot or you order in a lot um, so I think we've sort of lost this culture of passing down cooking knowledge and and recipes from, uh, parents to children. Um, and so there's a lot of people my age, um, you know, mid thirties, maybe some a little older, some a little younger, but there's a lot of people I think in my generation who grew up without, um, having a sort of central cooking figure and without having the sort of cooking knowledge built into them as a kid, um, without having family recipes. And so when you suddenly become an adult, you're like completely lost. Um, so I I think that sort of approach where it's like, you know, it's okay if you don't have a family recipe because here's how cooking works, and we're gonna like we're gonna break it down for you in a methodical way, in a way that's gonna make sense to you, regardless of of you know whether you ever cooked as a kid or not. I think that's why it appeals to, um, well, dudes in particular, but um, also I think a lot of people you know of our age who um, who who did grow up without without that kind of cooking. I find when I, when I do events, um, my fans are always almost always I'd say like ninety percent of my fans are like. Bearded guys um, or Asian people? <laughs> 90% of the time. It's inexplicable. <laughs>
2: uh, we we, we, t- we talked with Nathan Mirvold, and he was saying that he, he gets frustrated sometimes by how, I guess, illogical mm-hmm. people can be about the idea of cooking and food. Um, mm-hmm. Because we have s- culturally so much emotion and so much sense of self and history and family tied mm-hmm. up in how we eat and what we eat. And when you try to take a, a more sort of regimented scientific approach to this, like, well, what is actually happening here? Like, right. Let's dissect the science of it. There is a, a pretty vocal faction of people who recoil at that kind yeah, of analysis. They're mostly
3: Italian. They're mostly
2: Italian. <laughs> Do you get pushback? <laughs> I mean, do you – I mean, for all the Kenji fans, do you I, have, like, some weird small core of haters or something?
3: Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if it's a small core of, core of haters, but it's – there. yeah, there's definitely, like, when you, when you tell people – when I write a recipe that says, you know, put the pasta in a pan, cover it with cold water, stick it on the stovetop and bring it to a boil, because that works, like it, it saves energy, uses less water, it, it, it makes your sauces better in the end because you get a higher starch concentration. But everything about cooking pasta with less water is basically better, um, but it's not the traditional way you do it. Um, and you get, yeah, you definitely get people who are like, you're crazy or um, you're an insult to Italian uh, that's, cuisine. That's so uh, funny,
4: actually, because I... Y- you know, I grew up in an Italian-American mm-hmm. household. That's the stuff we cook to my family. And there is like, I definitely have observed this just in my family and people that know they don't want to read a recipe about Italian food. Yeah. They don't want to hear about how somebody does it. And I, I don't know, it's like, it let's <laughs> just be pride or I don't I, I mean, don't there, are certain, there I mean, are
3: certain cultures, I think, where, you know, where food plays a much more central cultural role, um, in sort of defining who you are as like a person or as a family or, um or, you know, or as a country. Um, and so, yeah, so when you're, when you're challenging a basic cooking method that someone grew up, grew up with, like you're, it's basically, you know, you're, you're challenging like some real core part of their existence. Um, and so you can, you can understand why people might get upset by that. Um, you know, I, I, I do, I do personally try and take a logical approach to things. Um, but you know, but there are things I'm irrational about too. Um, like, you know, I like I, my sandwiches have to be in triangles and not squares. And it's not like, you know, <laughs> and triangles just tastes better to me. And it's and, you know, or, or like I, I I hate it when when people toast, Bagels. I disagree um,
2: about that. So hard. Yeah, we could just argue about bagels for the rest of this if you want. Like, I'm here for
3: that. <laughs> where Where are you from? Again? I'm from
2: Chicago. Right.
3: Right. Okay. Which so that, that, has no that real it. bagel legacy.
2: Yeah. But yeah. No, that's true. Actually, I mean, because I I grew up eating those sort of frozen, right. like, tube shaped bags of of bagels. Which you have to toast. You have to toast them. Otherwise, to they're repulsive. Them, yeah. um, but yeah. No, I mean I think I grew I
3: think, up yeah, I grew up going to bagel shops that didn't have toasters. Right, that, because they beat
2: because the they bagels didn't need them every day. Yeah. Oh. I think there's there's something to the 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 like the heritage of cooking styles that people are are unwilling to let go of. So frequently the reason we do x or y in the kitchen is not because it is the most efficient way or the mm-hmm. thing that leads to the best or most consistent response. It's because of some deep-rooted adaptation. Mm-hmm scarcity or war or mm-hmm. like we, you know, lived X miles from the creek or whatever it was right. that led to you deciding that, you know, you should only boil water for pasta a gallon and a half at a time. Right.
3: Or, you know, I, th- I mean, or, or it's some, or it's some, um, it's some, it could also be that, you know, ingredients have changed over time or cooking equipment has changed over time. You know, the pasta thing, I think the main, the reason why um, people talk about using a ton of water to cook pasta, um, I think it all, I think, and, and I can't prove this, but I think the reason why is, is because if you get like a really... Old-fashioned, traditional, traditionally made pasta—that um, dried pasta or fresh pasta—but um, a dried pasta in particular that's extruded with um, bronze dyes, um, very you know very sticky on the outside, um, dried at a very low temperature. Um, the kind of pasta that's actually very difficult to find these days, because most pasta these days is extruded through Teflon dyes, uh, smooth on the outside and dried at high temperatures, which deactivates a lot of the um, a lot of the starch in there. Um, so if you if you're cooking a very old old-fashioned, old-world style pasta um, and you use only a little bit of water, it it sticks. You know it, you it takes a lot more effort to make sure that it doesn't stick. Um, but we don't cook with that pasta anymore. You know, 99.9% of the people in the world don't even in Italy, don't cook with that kind of pasta anymore. We cook with modern pasta, um, which doesn't require that huge amount of water. So I think, I mean, I think some of it might be things like that. Um, you know, other, other ones might be that they, um, you see people, chefs, you know, chefs work a certain way in restaurants and they're used to working with certain ingredients and certain types of equipment. And so they cook in a certain style. Um, those styles don't always uh, translate well to home kitchens. So if you, if you think about, um, for example, um, a steakhouse, right, where one chef has uh, a cook has a grill and maybe they're st- cooking 30 to 40 steaks at a time. Um, so they're filling up this grill. It's one person cooking all these steaks and they really don't have time to do anything um, other than put the steaks on, flip them once halfway through. And it's you know it's easy to keep track of. It gets the stake done fast, blah blah blah. It's it, and you mess up less um, at home. On the other hand. You're probably only cooking maybe two or maybe four steaks at a time. Um, so you, so I think the idea that you should only flip your meat once, I think, comes from this restaurant. Like restaurant chefs are like, flip the meat once. That's the way we do it. That's the way the best steakhouses in the world should do it. So that's how you should do it at home. But you find out that if you actually flip your steak multiple times, like even as as often as 15 or 30 seconds, um, it cooks more evenly. So you get less of a temperature gradient built up inside. It cooks more evenly, and it actually cooks about 30% faster too. Um, so it's you know. In almost all ways, it's better to flip your steak multiple times, and yet many people are really adamant about not doing it. Um, and I think I think that's something that comes just because the educators in this case are working under a different set of parameters than the actual executors or the students.
4: So, what recipe did you get the most blowback from? Like whether it's internet trolls or just you know recipe people or chefs? Um,
3: I mean, let's see. It's not. I don't really get blowback that often. Um, uh, Hmm. There, I, I guess there was a time early on when um, I I wrote an article that was, you know, in retrospect not researched well enough um, about deep frying turkey. And you know, I, I deep fried a few turkeys using a few different methods, and I found them to all be pretty universally bad. And so I was, I wrote an article about how deep fried turkeys suck, and then all these people got really, really, really upset. Um, and and um, and pointed out ways in in, in which I might have been wrong in, in the way I tested it. And, and it turns out they were right. You know, like I went back and retested a whole bunch of things and I had some really great deep fried turkey. So I wrote another article being like, sorry, deep fried turkey is good. Um, but that, you know, that that What's, was one of those situations where it was that's like, cool. Whoops. Like
2: <laughs> you, you faced it with humility and, and it was <laughs> it was fine. Has, has there been like. One Kenji technique that you, you think has been sort of your, your greatest, most unexpected discovery?
3: Mm, greatest, most unexpected discovery. I mean, I would say the one that gets used most frequently is the reverse sear. Um, which is a technique I developed at Cook's Illustrated um, 2007. And so that that is the idea that um, and I think, again, this is like one of those situations where they do it a certain way at a restaurant. And so that's just the way we did it at home. Um, But the idea is that so traditionally when you cook a steak or pork chop or whatever, you sear it at the beginning, then you put it into the oven to finish it. Um, And um, what I found was that if you reverse it and you start your meat in the oven, and then you sear it at the end. Um, you get a much better, um, you get a much better end result. The the temperature gradient inside, so you get much more sort of medium rare meat, um, a better crust. Um, the, the reason being that most of the reason is that um, when you put it in the oven, it dries out the surface of the steak. Um, so you, you sear much more efficiently um, because you know when, when you when you put a piece of steak in a pan, um, most of the energy that is stored in that pan goes towards uh, evaporating surface moisture from the meat. It takes Um, like about 50 times more energy to raise the temperature uh, of a gram of water by one degree, uh, to to evaporate a gram of water uh, than it does to raise that temperature by one degree. So even if your steak starts out at zero degrees, like pretty much frozen, um, you put it in a pan, the time it takes to go from zero degree, the amount of energy it takes to bring that steak from zero degrees Celsius to 100 degrees Celsius, which is when the water starts evaporating, it still takes five times more than that to actually evaporate that water. So that, you know the starting temperature of the meat is almost irrelevant um, to how it's going to sear, but the starting dryness is very important. And that's what the reverse sear does. It sort of dries out the exterior so that you can sear very efficiently. And that, And that's a technique I see. I mean, people use it all the time now. Um, which is pretty neat.
2: I mean, let's go back to this idea of perfection, right? So, how how do you and that is my word. I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth here, <laughs> but but I think there is this this notion in all of your dishes that it's let's. I mean, it's prescriptive. You're saying if you do it this way, you will come out with the best possible result mm. within the parameters of your testing, et cetera.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I try and qualify that. So, you know, when I, when I when I say best possible results, it's always with sort of the the parenthetical for me like you know it's like I, I do try and explain what I what I look for in X food um and and then I go about trying to get as close to that as possible so um you know so if you disagree with what my idea of a perfect chocolate chip cookie is then if you follow my recipe it's not going to be the perfect chip pot chocolate chip cookie for you um, um but at the same time I do try and offer as you know offer information so that you can adapt the recipe to make it the way you want. You know, I think about it a lot in the, in the way that I, um, I think a good restaurant reviewer writes a review. Um, you know, if you go, like, look on – Yelp or a place where they're unprofessional reviews. It's mostly people giving their opinions, but you don't know anything about that person, so you don't know where you know what sort of frame frame of reference they have. Um, whereas a professional, like a good professional restaurant reviewer, will um, you, you'll have an idea of what they're looking for and why a restaurant did live up to or failed to live up those expe- failed to live up to those expectations. Um, so I try I try and do the same when I'm describing a recipe or writing the headnote for a recipe um, is to you know explain what I'm looking for and how I got about um, and how. I went about achieving that end result. Um, so, so when I say perfect or ultimate or best or whatever, it's um, it really just means best for me.
2: It also requires you to have superlative opinions about virtually every food that exists. <laughs> Which feels like it might be kind of burdensome, right? Like, I feel like there are a handful of, of foods that I can have really, really strong opinions about mm-hmm. off the cuff. But if you – I mean, how how many different – you have – how many recipes in this book? 800 well, or – No, in the book
3: I think there's like 300.
2: Which is still a gigantic number. I mean, like I, I
3: – But online there's, yeah,
2: thousands. Thousands. You've, you've created thousands of recipes. Have you – discovered your own criteria for perfection in the course of examining these or, or well, do you just sort you of know not walk every around recipe
3: knowing? not every recipe is called the best or X Y like I only use the term best or ultimate or whatever when it's when it is something that like you know, um you know that I'm saying here's you know here's a recipe where um our our goal is not efficiency our goal is not our only goal is to make it taste as good as possible and here's what I think tastes as good as possible um and I'll usually only do that for things that I actually have opinions about and strong opinions about. Um, I don't always have strong opinions about food. You know, like I just, I just published a recipe for shakshuka this morning. The first time I ever had shakshuka was probably like, I don't know, five years ago. Um, no idea what it was before that. It's not like a dish I grew up with or I have very, very strong opinions about. Um, but you know, I've had it enough that I can say, and, and that I can say, this is what I like, and this is what I don't like. Um, but when you're writing a recipe like that, you know, the first step in every recipe is always research. Um, and, um, not just research of what other recipes are out there, but also sort of cultural and historical research, because you really want to know what this, where this dish came from, what it means to people, um, and get a sense of you know what it's supposed to be before you go and and try and make it you know your own way. Because because the last thing you want to do is say here's my recipe for shakshuka, and then like have you know people in in North Africa or in or in Israel or wherever that you know at places where shakshuka is very popular and where it came from um, say no that's like. What the fuck are you doing? That's not Chakshuka, um, or you know, or or even even simpler, it's like meatloaf, right? Like I like I had meatloaf a couple times as a kid, but it wasn't like a family. It wasn't a family staple dish or anything, um, but it was for a lot of people. So when I work on a meatloaf recipe, the first thing I do is is find out what does meatloaf mean to people. Um, because I don't want to write a meatloaf recipe where people then make it and think to themselves, no, this doesn't, this doesn't hit the right notes, you know? Um, so that, you know, that, that sort of cultural perspective I think is, is the most important thing when you're starting recipe development.
2: Speaking of, of ownership, you, you've been a really vocal advocate for people crediting recipes. Yeah, <laughs> which is really fun to watch on Twitter because you get like total guns blazing. It's fantastic. Angry Kenji is such fun. Kenji,
4: <laughs> like, <laughs> I uh, I don't I don't envy you being in this position, man. Um, I mean, the recipe world is can be pretty slippery. It's it seems yeah. sometimes,
3: and you know, um, I mean, my. I, I want I want recipes shared, you know, and I, and I and and I don't I, like it's like if you want to take a recipe I wrote and feed it to your family and say it's your own like, I don't give a shit about that. Like, do you should do that, right? It's like you cooked it. It's yours. what What really sort of bugs me is when like a big company, when they know that they're doing something unethical and they just won't admit it, and you know, and and this is these are people who have told me, like to my face over the phone, editor an editor told me, yes, like, this recipe was stolen. I know it like I saw them do it and I told them they shouldn't and they did it and it's like they know that that's what's going on and yet they still refuse to credit. And it's like why like what harm comes from give, from giving people credit when they come up with an idea?
2: Are you still are you still in a in a fight with Tyler Florence who stole like stole <laughs> your french fry recipe and ran it in his cookbook, ran
3: in his cookbook. as if it yeah. was
2: his own brilliant technique?
3: You know, I, so I th- I think most of the time um, I don't. I like. I doubt Tyler Florence had anything to do with that. You know. I think that's. You know. He has his test kitchen. He has um, a team of people whose job it is to come up with recipes and test them. Um, I think probably somebody saw that recipe and brought it into the test kitchen to try it out, um, and maybe that person was just like, you know not, didn't, didn't grow up like as a journalist or whatever, Did, you know, didn't have the right kind of, um, the right kind of education to understand, like, these are the kinds of things you do have to credit. Um, and then it got passed up and, and it just ended up getting looked over and put into the book.
2: I think there's also some, some credit for this phenomenon and credit sounds too positive. I think there is some blame for this phenomenon that we can give to the murky space that recipes and cooking and ideas of technique and, Dish creation, mm-hmm. just sort of play in culture at large. Yeah, I mean, because recipes are things that are often just sort of organically passed on from you know parents to child or friend to friend, or just sort of exist in yeah. a camera within culture. Yeah. Maybe, and, and you know, I mean, anybody who's ever written a recipe or set or, or had a food blog has has had the moment where you learn this sort of like we cannot like all say it in a sing song voice like you can't copyright a recipe. You can only copyright the language the words, that it's yeah. written in, and so it's. It, it makes a certain sense to me that that uh, we might just sort of think of techniques or methods as existing in the ether and being sort of by and large our right cultural birthright right and the know? and the
3: question is what, at one point at what point does like a novel idea become sort of just general cultural knowledge you know at what point can you stop crediting people for whatever you know and and, and that stuff comes up in my own work sometimes you know like the um the, the meatloaf recipe in my book um, um you know i developed it for four or five well i guess yeah 4 years ago something like that um and then um, when the book came out, I had um, a former colleague at Cook's Illustrated who was like, hey, yeah, your meatloaf recipe uses like some of the techniques I did at Cook's Illustrated. And, I was like, um, and then I looked at it and it's like, oh, yeah, you know, like their meatloaf recipe has grated cheese. Mine has grated cheese. Um, we both add, add gelatin to our meatloaves. Um, and so and, – and I that was like, oh, shit, you know, I probably should have said something about that. And it, it just, you know, it didn't hit my – it didn't occur to me while I was developing it. Um, so when we published the recipe online, I mentioned Cook's Illustrated, but in the book it doesn't say that. So, you know, it's like – yeah, who who's to say what is malicious, what's not, and 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 you know when does something become just general knowledge, and when is it okay to credit, not credit? Um, it's, it's 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 yeah, it's hard to know where you draw that line. Um, um, you know, I I think generally it's just do you know do the best you can. Yeah. <laughs> um, it does it doesn't hurt to, to credit people. It only it only helps everyone.
2: Kenji, we have come to the portion of the Eater Upsell that we like to call the Lightning Round. Okay. Nilay, take it away.
0: Hey, Kenji. It's Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge. I have some lightning round questions for you. First, if you had to pick between colonizing Mars and making the hyperloop between L.A. and San Francisco real, what would
3: you choose? Mars. Next question. Uh, Mars. (laughs) Who who would pick the other one? Of course we colonize Mars. I don't
2: know. What if you didn't get to go to Mars?
3: Well, I'm assuming that—I mean, I don't think either one would be particularly useful for me as an individual, but I think one is— Way cooler than the other, um, and also way more helpful in in the long run than the other. We're, I mean, we're gonna we're I mean, gonna have to colonize takes like Mars. Like an hour at some to
4: point. get to LA from San Francisco. It's, yeah, you know, yeah, not not it's not that big of a uh, gap to bridge. Would you yeah. go to Mars?
3: I, I well, maybe I, maybe I could retire to Mars. I don't know. There's enough stuff to see on Earth for now, but uh, you know, we're gonna have to colonize other planets if we don't want to completely implode. I mean, maybe either either we're gonna destroy ourselves as a species or we're gonna colonize other planets. I, I, I'm I'm optimistic that it's going to be the latter.
2: Both of them make for really good action movies.
3: Yeah, yeah. So, all right, next question. Do you read the comments? Um, I, yeah, and I shouldn't, but I do, and they get me worked up sometimes. Do and, you self Google? And I shouldn't get worked up, but I do. What's that? Do you self Google? Um, no, uh, no. I, well, I have a Google alert set up for my book so that I'll know if like someone reviewed my book or something like that. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't put my own my own name. In. I don't, maybe I do. Let me. Let's see if it auto completes. Everybody self googled.
2: <laughs> I, I
3: I definitely self googled. I'll Google the food lab, but I, I don't think I Google my name generally.
2: I believe that I think everybody picks their nose. Everybody self googles and everybody tweets in the bathroom. It's oh, just yeah, like yeah, universal yeah. truth. That.
3: Some sometimes sometimes like my name doesn't show up when I Google. Some sometimes I tweet from the bathroom when I'm when I'm at the office, and and then I realize oh everybody knows I'm tweeting in the bathroom right now. Um, some, but I have I have taken like phone interviews from the bath. And I usually don't tell them that.
2: That's um, so saucy. (laughs) That feels so like old Hollywood starlet. You know, like you're in your bubble bath in your giant heart-shaped bathtub just like taking an interview.
3: Well, sometimes, you know, because I live in California and so there's water restrictions. So I, like a bath is like a rare, because when I lived in New York, I took baths a lot. And growing up, like, you know, my mother's Japanese and I know Japanese people love baths, I guess, but I grew up in the bath a lot. And when I lived in New York, I would say I spent, like, I would say a good 40% of, food lab articles and the book was written like from the bath with my laptop on a little chair just outside the bath um
2: this is my favorite fact about you that I've ever learned (laughs) I love it but these
3: days a bath is a rare like a really rare treat so so, when I get in like I stay for a long time and I'll work from it whatever and then if someone calls I'm not gonna get out just to take the call so I like I shut off like we have a jacuzzi tub so I shut off the jacuzzi and like try and sit as quietly as possible so I don't splash around (laughs)
2: I love it. I love it. And I hope, love hope it. that
3: they don't hear like the reverb of the it's tile amazing. walls.
2: This is great. <laughs> All right, next question.
3: This one's hard.
0: If you could only eat one fast food burger for the rest of your life, what would it be?
3: One fast food burger. Um, well, I mean, I so does Shake Shack count as fast food? I don't think so. I think Shake Shack's out. It doesn't count. I would. I would say. I mean, I would say of like the real sort of real classic fast foods, In and Out. Alright. Easy. Pretty easy.
2: That's that's a classic answer.
4: Double double or what's uh, your? I order? do so
3: I do a single, um animal style with chopped chilies, uh whole and uh, whole grilled onion.
2: Have Greg and I talked to you about our shared obsession with the secret way to make your Shake Shack burger way, way better that, that reminded me of.
3: Which is the secret way to make your Shake Shack
2: Burger? <laughs> way, it's um it's to add, what do they call them, Greg? The peppers, the cherry relish
4: yeah, that comes on the. Uh, it's, so it's not. You know, a, comes oh, on at, the Shake Shack, at Shake Shack, you oh, mean? Oh,
3: oh, okay. Yeah, at yeah, Shake yeah, Shack, yeah.
2: they have these chopped chilies that That's they put in right. on one particular yeah. type of burger, but you can ask for them. On their
3: smoke stack, or whatever yeah, it, yeah. And you
2: can ask for them. You can ask for them with anything. On the regular
3: burger, And nice. it
2: is transformative.
3: Nice. That reminds me. Actually, most popular, most or, popular Serious Seats article of all time was um, a thing I wrote about the secret menu at um, In and Out,
2: oh. which I think is
3: now it's. It, It's mainly popular still because it's like the only reference on the In-N-Out Wikipedia page. Um, So we get a lot of traffic from Wikipedia. Oh, wow.
4: That's incredible. Well, that's the seminal secret menu. That's the one that everyone
3: wants to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know?
4: And it's the, it's the chain that has the most robust secret menu program it that does. I know of.
3: Yeah, it was, it was a fun, fun thing to write. Because I I went I was living in New York at the time, but I went and visited a friend in California, and we went to the In-N-Out in Sausalito. Um, and at first, my plan was like, all right, we're going to try and make this inconspicuous, and we'll go up uh, and we'll only order like four things at a time and, and come back to our table, and we'll make multiple rounds and send pe- different people up each time. And by the third time I got up, the the cashier, his name is Thomas, he's like, are you guys just trying to get everything on the secret menu? And it's like, sheepishly like, yes. Yeah. He's like, oh, this is so awesome. Here, I'll help you. And then like he like basically told us everything on the menu. And he's like, oh, and you have to try this, and you have to try this, and you have to try that. Um, and he just became like our little tour guide for um, In and Out Secret Menu. It was great.
2: That's so cool.
3: And he said it was his funnest, funnest day at work ever.
2: Oh, good, you made his day. <laughs> That's terrific. All right, on to our next one.
0: What song do you most often imagine yourself performing?
3: What song do I most often imagine myself performing? I mean. Uh, I, I go to karaoke sometimes four times a week. Um, so I, I rarely am ima- like, I, yeah, I, I go and sing songs at karaoke. <laughs> uh, so you don't
2: have to imagine it.
3: I don't even have to imagine it. What um, are your karaoke jams? I, I try to, I try to mix it up a lot. Um, recently it's been a lot of Paul Simon, um, and Elton John. Love that. Um, you can call me owl is a great karaoke song, I think. Yeah. Um, cause yeah, it has it like is. a nice recognizable chorus, but like the words are fun and it's sort of fast paced and not stupid. Um, yeah, I try to mix it up a bit.
0: Hey, Clute, we're back from uh, from Kenji.
3: Kenji is super smart.
0: Yeah, um,
1: very active on Twitter too. He He's is a great follow.
0: He is a great follow. He gets
1: pissed off at people.
0: He sh- yeah, he does.
1: So we're we're putting together some you know review episodes, and it made me think about how you have ferried in so many guests to the upsell, and I yeah. want to know the gossip. Who's, who's, the... who's nice? Who's rude? Oh shit! Tell me all the behind the scenes, hot um, gossip, for the super fans who've made it this far.
0: I've got a story about. This is more about me than it is about a guest.
1: All right, fine. Sorry,
0: <laughs> this is a lot about me here. But uh, all the guests go. They check in on the lot in the lobby, and then they come up to the fifteenth floor, and then I grab them from the fifteenth floor. <laughs> but my first stop, without fail, is the snack fridge. Um, I'll be like, "Hey, can I grab you a thing like some water, a tea, um, a Lacroix." Uh, but when I started, like, cause I was like a little more nervous or whatever, I would like, <laughs> I would say to the guests, um, I would just like have them weigh in on the LaCroix debate, like, oh, we have all these flavors. Like everyone, you know, coconut is really polarizing. <laughs> like <laughs> as I've gotten more comfortable with the guests, I've transitioned into now telling them that what I used to do was tell everyone about the different flavor preferences and like and now that like I I feel like I have this moment of honesty where I'm like hey you know what I used to do is uh, I would bring the guests in and I'd be like hey oh yeah like uh, here are the different flavors coconut's really polarizing but I was like yeah how funny is that you know I'm a goofball and uh, Jay McInerney especially did not give a shit about that like he was just like
1: (laughs) why would anyone give a shit why why is this their first experience with us
5: (laughs) it's
0: I thought it was kind of endearing some people like Chris Shepard was really into it. He's like, oh, boy, like, small talk. Like, he was really fun about it. Uh, he was the nicest. Actually, Chris Shepard was the nicest, nicest person. Nicest guy? Yeah. He's by a nice guy. Barbara Lynch, my first experience with Barbara Lynch was she had these, like, weird toasts things from Italy, like anchovy toasts mm-hmm. or something. And, like, I walk up to her and I was like, hi, like, hey, Barbara, hey, Carrie, because I—and um, without saying anything, she just goes, like— open your mouth, and, like, just shoves a fucking piece of anchovy toast in my <laughs> I mouth. I
1: love that. And
0: yeah, yeah, it was really funny. It was, like, a real power play, though. I was just like, OK, I'll take you downstairs now.
1: <laughs> what a good way to break the ice. Yeah,
0: I felt—I <laughs> definitely couldn't You do, felt humiliated by it? Not humiliated, but I definitely wasn't going to go into my whole LaCroix stick. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God, eh? So if yeah, if you've been worried if people are not like trying to come back to the upsell, it's probably because they've been they were like that. They're fuck like, it, I don't want to so deal with weird. that shit <laughs> at the beginning with the fridge and everything. So weird.
1: This is a great segue. It's to like,
0: Nathan uh, into the
1: launch of our new podcast called AP Dance Anxieties. Oh yeah.
0: You love that elevator story. Yes. <laughs> well, we'll save that for uh for next week. Speaking of segue, uh, we have a word from uh Bob's Red Mill, that's going to be read by um, our favorite, Greg Morbido. And uh, Greg Morbido is actually a huge fan of Red's, Red, ugh, Bob's Red Mill. When we got Bob's Red Mill as a sponsor, he was really pumped about it. So uh, here he is.
4: Oh, Bob's Red Mill. I really like Bob's Red Mill. I like many of their products. I have them, some of them in my house right now. Uh, whenever my in laws come over, they're vegetarian. I like to make this kale polenta using Bob's white cornmeal. I also frequently make this chickpea and tomato stew using Bob's garbanzo beans. I am not a paleo person. I don't eat gluten free. Um, I don't have celiac disease, but for those who have true dietary restrictions like celiac disease and need a 100% safe gluten-free option, it can be hard to find a brand you really trust. But that's where the OG of gluten-free Bob's Red Mill comes in. Bob's Red Mill is offering an exclusive deal to our amazing Eater upsell listeners with a promo code Eater for 20% off all products at bobsredmill.com. You can stock up on gluten-free products from oats to flours and meals that are all processed in a 100% gluten-free facility to ensure zero cross-contamination. So head to bombsredmill.com to shop and explore their huge range of products and get inspiration from hundreds of recipes. And don't forget to use promo code EATER for 20% off.
0: Uh, now let's move on to Nathan Mirvold. He is obviously a, I think we called him in the title, like the culinary Bruce Wayne, because he's like one of these guys who like uses a lot of money and genius to decipher things that human have trouble with
1: sure, yeah, and food, and he has so many obsessions yeah. and weird aspects of him. Yeah. He's, he's a dinosaur maniac. Yeah, he's
0: not solving crime. He's not solving. He's definitely not like solving Batman. crime that I know of. Yeah,
1: that that could be a next endeavor,
0: um, and he's. Whether or not he's just like figured out how to be fun and sociable, or he actually is fun and sociable, (laughs) he definitely comes across fun and sociable. Like, I'm not. You doubt
1: it? You don't think he's actually fun? Well, I don't know. I think it's just just a a really good facade of fun.
0: If you are capable of cracking any of life's mysteries, like, the first one I would want to crack would be like, how do you get everyone to like you?
1: And then you solve global warming yeah, next. Yeah, and then global warming. First, it's just yeah, like you fasten your social lubrication. The next to you. Then,
0: OK. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I want to know how to walk into any bar <laughs> and charm any person. And he's done that. We'll never know. Mm-hmm. I guess we could just ask him, though. Maybe he'd be fun. He'd be like, whoa, ho, ho, yeah, yeah. Be like,
1: when you're alone, studied is it just thousands actually of,
0: right. deep yeah. depression? Well, he's he's married. I mean, he, I mean, not that that, but he probably has someone who's with him a fair amount of time.
1: Right, we should ask her.
0: She'd bigger person what, to What's he ask. really like? Okay um, cool. well speaking of what is Nathan Mirvald really like, you know who Here you know go. besides his wife, the person who has gotten closest to figuring that out it's is Helen, Helen Rosner. Rosner. <laughs> yeah
1: take it away, <laughs>
5: Helen <laughs> When I was nine years old, I found cookbooks at the local library. and it was so cool that I could actually learn how to cook and maybe learn how to cook better than mom and grandma. Um, and I decided I wanted to cook Thanksgiving dinner, so I got a bunch of books for the library, and I cooked Thanksgiving dinner all by myself. And for your whole family. Yep. At the age of nine. Yep. That's extraordinary. I do. I, I do a better job now. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but but I also would say the the job I did wasn't worse than anyone else in my family had done who were adults. <laughs> That's for sure. And uh, w- one of the cookbooks I loved, because of course I was a nine-year-old boy then, um, and somewhere down in de- inside I still am, but uh, was a book called The Pyromaniacs Cookbook. It was about flamblaying things. I thought that was so cool that you could actually light things on fire, but you had to heat it up a bunch first so the alcohol would vaporize, and so I thought that was awesome.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I still think that's awesome, right? <laughs> like, who doesn't love lighting stuff
5: on fire? For the second Thanksgiving I cooked, I took that a little bit to an extreme, and we had a very special course, which I had under a cloche so I could reveal it. And the deal was, while I did the reveal, I'd lit a firecracker, handed it to my brother who threw it under the table, so as I did the reveal, the firecracker went off. And, boy, it scared everyone to death.
2: You had such a sense of the theatrical.
5: (laughs) Um, That would—I wish you were around to defend me in the aftermath. (laughs) That's an excellent argument.
2: You're using the element of surprise. Like, all of this contributes to flavor.
5: One of the things that bugged me as a kid is I had heard that steam injected in the oven makes the crust crisp. Now, this Hmm. bugged the hell out of me because—
2: And you're still nine at this point, right?
5: Yes, That's right. I started making bread around then. All right. And it's like, really? Steam? Really? How does that work? Shouldn't like water make it soggy? So it turns out now, you know, many, many, many years later, uh, people still didn't know why. There are two dominant theories and they were both easily disproven. So we set out one of our goals. We were going to figure out why. And I think we have actually figured out why injecting steam makes crust crispy. Are you going to tell us? Well, it's a little complicated, but here's the, here's the, the, the clues to it. Uh, bagels and bao. Uh-huh. Okay. Now, if you've had a good bao, the Chinese steamed bread... It's got a kind of a sheen on the outside, Mm -hmm. and it's got a very thin skin. It's not crispy, of course, because it was steamed. Um, Now, bagels also have a very thin skin, but they're very chewy. You'd never call a bagel crispy. That would be like a weird bagel. Um, Bagels are steamed or boiled up front. And the, the main theories up to this point was that when you put the the bread into the oven uh, and there was steam there, a thin layer of water would uh, would condense and it would be like boiling water on the outside. So it's like you are boiling the outside and that would cause starch in the flowers to gelatinize and that would make it shiny and it would make it crisp and chewy. But if that theory was true, then actually bow and especially bagels ought to be really crispy. Okay. Now, bao and bagels are shiny. So the shiny part of that was right. And it turns out that you have to – it's a more complicated explanation that we're still working on the pages to try to explain. But uh, the way heat transfer works in the bread actually keeps the crust super thin once you've formed that skin. So a a baguette that goes into an oven, you instantly inject steam when you put baguettes in the oven. And for the first minute or two or three – it's actually like a bow. It's being steamed. And it forms a skin very much like that thin skin you see on the and there There's a whole reason why, but I can get into that. But it's, it's, well, fundamentally, it's hotter. Believe it or not, it's steam in the oven makes the oven seem hotter to the bread than if it was just air.
2: Is this related to why um, you slash baguettes before you cook them? Um, Does that help break that skin that forms? Well,
5: so yes, you have to break the skin. In fact, there's a whole set of breads that you score or slash. And the reason you do that is that as the bread is cooking uh, or baking, it continues to expand. And bakers call that oven spring. An oven spring is quite substantial. Now, as it makes that expansion, if there's a a completely – hard or or, impermeable membrane that will either limit the expansion uh, or it will do what's called a breakout, where it will all of a sudden explode off in one direction and look really weird. So bagels, you steam for much longer than you would a baguette. And that makes an impermeable membrane, which doesn't get broken because you don't slash the bagels. And that's why bagels are so dense and have such a dense crumb. Because they can't expand. Correct, you constrained them. That's ex-
2: this is blowing my mind right now. Everything yeah, I is never making thought about sense that
5: before. That's that's very
4: interesting.
2: <laughs> the world of bread just became so much more understandable
5: to me. Like, <laughs> well, good.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's working and, already.
5: <laughs> well, that's that is our simple goal. We also have to release bread from being a staple. Okay. part that's of that thing is that if you keep if you insist and you say oh yes bread is a staple and it's something we have to do for everyone but' but well that's part of what draws it into this political mael- maelstrom that it can't get out of and if you say no actually bread is an important food but it's a side dish I mean, and it's, it's not some... great
4: to eat a lot of the bad stuff <laughs> you know it's not great for your yes body no
5: well, it, it and it, we we found this great um I, I love going on eBay finding old ads. It, it gives you some insight into um, the mentality of, of not only not ancient times, but like you know, just a few decades ago. We found this great ad from a flour company. I think it was from the nineteen forties, uh, and it said, "Eat more bread. Consider making it fifty percent of your your diet." Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you said it's anything. 50% of your
4: diet? And the other 50% is cigarettes. And- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe if you're
2: like a quarry laborer. I mean, like this, that's, that's huge. Well,
5: but uh, all of our ancestors did at some point in time, depending on exactly who your ancestors were, that could have been relatively recently or could have been 200 years ago. But they did live on bread and porridge and other kinds of foods as the bulk of their calorie consumption. Um, So, if we release bread mentally from being this pillar of all these things, and say, "Yes, I'm willing to spend more for it," yeah, you know, if if I can spend, you know, twenty five dollars on a plate of risotto or pasta, which is not expensive by New York standards at all. There's, I'm not talking about the top places. This is the, well. I ought to be able to, to, willing to spend that for an equal serving of bread. Yeah, the
4: bread, you know, is not doesn't grow on trees. You know,
2: it's the emotional thing. I think you know, it just really we have is. A, like, a strong can't emotional thing.
5: Absolutely, but I think we have to if we care about bread.
2: Yeah. Well, so so working in the cooking lab and working on this bread cookbook is not your full time job.
5: <laughs> well, no, it's it's only like, you know, 80 hours a week or something. <laughs> it's like just nothing. like a little part-time there are deal. There's so many
2: other hours besides <laughs> that. But so but you work on a lot of things. So the cooking lab is part of Intellectual Ventures, right? Which is your is it a, a company? What's the name? Yeah, it's a ortho? company. Okay. <laughs> Which um does a lot, including what was it? I was just reading about the other day, nuclear reactors. Right.
5: Well, so we actually design and build nuclear reactor components, um, you know, just in the next space over from our cooking lab. Sure. That's another form of cooking. Yeah, just it's all one complex. Well, <laughs> so I like working on interesting, cool things. And in this case, we've invented a, new, a fundamentally new type of nuclear power reactor, which is fundamentally safer. And way more scalable. And it's one of the things that I think society has to look at if we want to tackle global warming. Uh, uh, To date, the world has made essentially zero progress on global warming. The CO2 level in the atmosphere keeps going up year after year. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's great to talk about renewables. It's great to talk about a bunch of these other things. But one of the things I think you have to consider in the mix is uh, nuclear. Now, it's not the only thing. We have other energy projects at our company. Uh, we also encourage the whole world to have other projects. But you know, the technology industry that I've come from is about doing impossible things. Uh, the progress we've made in hardware and software and networking is so shocking, it's crazy. Uh, And we've all been the beneficiaries of that to a very large extent Uh, to solve problems like our our huge energy problems, which are even more mired in politics and things than – I mean, imagine a world where we didn't actually care about oil. That would release tensions in all kinds of places. Yeah. Imagine a world where China didn't have to worry about it. I mean, it's not just us worrying. It's all the rest of the world worrying. Uh, You know, the – Uh, Americans have, on average, across the whole population, we use about 11 kilowatts. That means it's like we had 10, 11 toasters running 24-7. Per person? Per person. Okay. That's your total energy. Now, you might be in the low end. Somebody else might be in the high end. But as a society, that's what it is. Uh, And it's all forms of primary energy. If you look at the world average... It's about twenty five hundred per person. Yeah, and if you look at China, China happens to be right at the world average right now. They're about twenty five hundred. And the thing is, this century, China wants eleven thousand like us. They want our lifestyle. Meanwhile, our lifestyle is going up, not hugely quickly, but it, you know, right now there are millions of hard disks uh, at Facebook and Google and Microsoft and other places, all spinning, waiting for one of us to type in a query or post a thing. And that takes a lot of power. So we continue to add more power to our lives. And – but if you, if you think about the world in, tr- in the terms of saying, well, the 2,500 is going to go towards 12 – you know, 11,000, 12,000, uh-huh. we're not talking about just today's energy system. We're talking about taking the energy system up by a factor of five. Which requires thinking about it differently. It does. And if you don't, you in, in the very short run, you can say, oh, you know, put in LED lights and shut the lights off and unplug your cell phone charger. Meanwhile, China and the rest of the world is trying to get our lifestyle. They're making great progress. We can't stop them. Um, morally, you could argue whether we ought to try or not, <laughs> but we're not going to stop them. So... We have to solve that big energy problem. That's where I think nuclear comes in. But we also do lots of uh, research for things in the third world. Um, literally across the hall from the, the kitchen, um, we have work on new diagnostics for polio and TB. We have um, a big disease modeling program. We make containers for uh, to keep vaccines cold in Africa. So it's a nice, it's a cool place to work. <laughs>
2: So you you personally have been, a, I, w- I guess I want to say like a man of obsessions. I think I first, you first crossed my radar. Is that the right metaphor? What do you do to a radar? You first came onto my radar um, when I was reading um, about your interest in dinosaurs. Yes. Which was, this was maybe a decade or so ago that I think I was reading something about this. And then resurfaced again, with modernist cuisine. And so how do you how do you go from dinosaurs to cooking to nuclear reactors to—is it all? I mean, are you still deeply involved in dinosaurs?
5: In fact, just last week, I got news from a scientific journal that my, my latest really big dinosaur paper had been accepted for publication. So the next few weeks, I'll have another big dinosaur paper.
2: Congratulations.
5: So I keep working on dinosaurs. And now also asteroids, right? Yes. I— I have done a lot of work on asteroids lately. Um, I'm, uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm speaking at two conferences the same week, and it's a little awkward to shuttle back and forth. And One is the American Astronom- Astronomical Society Division on Planetary Sciences, where I'm talking about asteroids, and the other is the Vanity Fair Conference. And I think I am the only person speaking at both.
2: It, it, are these things all sort of scratching the same itch? Like, are these lines of inquiry all kind of turning you on in the same way? Or is it, is it a variety of intellectual stimulations? That was very sexual. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
5: okay. Well, yeah, you're asking what floats my boat. Um, y- you know, I love all the things I do. If I didn't love them, I wouldn't do them.
2: But what's the difference between something you love and something you don't love? Is there something all the things you love have in
5: common? Well, there's some big differences. I mean, the way I do cookbooks is as a team. We have a team of people, and I feel you do a much better book as a team. Now, that's weird because in general for novels, the quality of a novel goes down dramatically if there's more than one author. Mm-hmm. You just there aren't any novels that are great that are written by four people. It just doesn't, doesn't seem to happen. Well, software is a little different. And so I've always argued within the world of software that the best software is written by a small team. When you get a really huge team like you have to for the giant programs that are around, it gets unwieldy and it gets a little sl- uh, cumbersome. But if you have a small team of great people, each one tries to make their area and their expertise great. And so uh, our team, there are people trying to make their part of the book not only great, but maybe better than I would, um, even better than I would even want. But oops, they already did it. And so, okay, that's really cool. We'll do that. Um, And uh, so my books are that way. They're a a team thing. The research on some of the stuff is usually only me and another person or two. Um, But I, I love the collaboration. I love the team. And that allows us to... Do stuff at this scale. Um, I do scientific collaboration with my science papers, but they're, they are—they tend to be much smaller things. They tend to be um, things that where I'm doing a huge amount of the primary work. So I did not bake every loaf of bread for this project. Wait, um, what? I know, <laughs> I know. It's now comes the, uh,
3: the hard ugly truth, man.
5: Um, you know, during the core part of the bread development, so for most of those three uh, years, we went through a pallet of flour every three weeks. That's a thousand pounds. My goodness. Yeah.
4: <laughs> well, on that note, Nathan, it is time for us to move to a thing we like to call the lightning round. Okay. Ooh. Hey Nathan, this is Matthew Cannon, the features editor at Eater, and I have some lightning round questions for
5: you. How would you go about making a fake meat product today? Hmm. Well, <laughs> And so you have 30
2: I, seconds to answer. No, I'm
5: kidding. I've tasted all of the current crop or pretty all the ones I know about. And they always say, "Oh, you can't tell." Um, and oh, bullshit. You can totally tell. Oh my god. And I have a quarrel with the whole idea of fake meat. Okay? Um in a sense, it would be great if you could relieve people's cravings for meat with something else. But throughout all of history, people have invented many fake meats. Okay, The first fake meat is called sausage. Now, of course, it's still meat, but it was taking inedible parts of meat, the fat and the, the stuff that was too tough, and turning it into something that was sort of like an artificial filet mignon. It was tender. It had was fat. It had flavor. Cheese was for many societies an artificial meat. Tofu was an artificial meat. And guess what? The way each one of those things found its success was not as an artificial meat. It was as its own thing. But the thing is—and uh, I discussed this with a, a chef in the Bay Area who's worked with it extensively—we both agreed like, oh my god, just put it in a different dish and call it something else. and. Uh, and it would be fine. It would be great. But what you you kind of set it up to fail when you go to that goal. Yeah. And I, I talked to the founder of one of these uh, fake meat companies. And he had, oh, my God, does this guy have invective against the meat industry? I mean, it's like this torrent of negativity. And It's like, OK, good luck with that because until you can make it, perfect or, or, or a whole lot closer than you currently have, you're fooling yourself. Yeah. Uh, and, and yet, look, I totally agree that we need as both for our own health, but also for the health of the planet, moving away from meat as a large a component of the diet as, as it is in some places would be a great thing. So are you doing it a disservice by saying it's fake meat, telling people they can't tell the difference? And then having him be disappointed. Is that a good thing for the planet? It's very unclear.
2: I like that answer. That's a very yeah. good answer.
5: Yeah.
0: So that was Nathan Mirvold. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Best of Science. Next week, we'll have another Best of episode, and it's going to be more fun. And Amanda will be uh, even less <laughs> excited about our <laughs> banter. Not true. No. <laughs> Well, thank you for doing this, and uh, we will see you next week. Bye, everyone.
4: Hey there, I'm Dieter Bone from The Verge, and I'm dropping you into the podcast to remind you of something. Apple is going to release a new iPhone in September. They do literally every September, but this year it's going to be a really big deal. And so our podcast, The Vergecast, is going to record in front of a live audience the day after Apple's announcement. We'll be recording on September 13th in San Francisco, and you can get tickets at bit.ly slash thevergecastsf. That's bit.ly slash thevergecastsf. We hope to see you there.
2: The Eater Upsell is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network and is recorded at Vox Media Studios in San Francisco and New York City. Your two hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and that other guy whose voice you hear every week, Greg Morbido. Our producer is AP Dan, more commonly known as Dan Janine. Our editorial producer is Monica Burton. Our executive producer is Maureen Janone. Our studio team is Miles Ewell and Paige Bethman. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. And the most important person in this entire process, the one person without whom none of this would be possible, past, present, or future, is you, beautiful and brilliant listener. It's you. Thank you for everything you do. We love you.